I'm Amanda Lippman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Faz is taking a couple weeks off to spend time with his fresh new baby, so I am handling this episode intro solo, but he was able to join me for this week's conversation with Jamal Rod. Jamal is the co-founder and executive director of Evergreen Action, a climate change advocacy group that's been pushing Democrats to act as aggressively as we can on climate change, especially as they write the reconciliation bill that is very slowly making its way through Congress. I will be the first to admit that I am not particularly well-versed on climate change, at least not as well as I am on some of the other issues that we've covered on the show. It's not because I don't care or because I'm not particularly interested. I am. But I think like a lot of people, it just feels like there's so much science clearly in favor of action and so much Republican obstinance against action that it feels like a place where the overwhelming partisanship means the world might end and there's not much we can do about it. But I don't think that's true. That just is how I feel. So I'm really glad we were able to invite Jamal onto the podcast. He understands the politics around global warming and climate change incredibly well because he's been involved in trying to pass substantive legislation to address it since 2009 when he worked on the Waxman-Markey bill. That was the last time Congress tried to pass meaningful climate change legislation. And the upcoming infrastructure reconciliation bill, murder-suicide compromise that we've got going on is our best and possibly last chance to turn this ship around. So even if you're like me, Even if you don't know all that much about climate change or you feel really demoralized about climate change, I think it's clear that none of us need to be experts to see its effects. I mean, I am in Brooklyn right now and the sun is red, (laughs) the window is hazy from the forest fires all the way out on the West Coast. Meanwhile, hundreds of people are dead in Europe from catastrophic flooding. There are fires in Montana. There are heat domes over Portland. Those are just some of the most recent examples. So the conversation with Shamal couldn't be more timely or more important. But before we get into it, I want to talk about something else that's been on my mind this week. If you're not paying attention to what's happening with Texas Democrats, you are missing a story of bold, courageous action. So a little explainer here. The Republican governor of Texas called a special session for the state legislature, and he set the agenda for what they were going to cover. It included egregious voter suppression bills, anti-trans bills, anti-abortion bills, bills that would really dictate what teachers could teach in Texas public schools. And Texas Democrats are in the minority in the state house and in the state Senate, so didn't really have a way to push back. When they realized what was happening and they saw their options on the table, they decided to leave the state and deny Republicans the quorum they needed to pass the bills or to even gavel the session into order. They have to leave for at least three weeks for as long as the session lasts. Many of them are young parents. They have kids. I've been working really closely with some of the Texas Democrats over the last couple of years because Run for Something, my organization, has helped elect a bunch of them, including Representatives Aaron Zwiener, who got on a plane with her three-year-old and left her husband behind in Texas, and Representative John Boosie, who drove through the night with his pregnant wife because they didn't feel safe getting on a plane. It is, I think, a really beautiful if albeit maybe a little ultimately (laughs) fruitless endeavor, to try and show that 
Democrats, even in the minority, and even when we don't have control of these chambers, can take action, can take a stand, can show that we're fighting not just against something, but really for democracy. You know, it sucks that they had to leave the state and many of them are making huge sacrifices for it, but they're doing so in DC, taking meetings with members of Congress, with United States senators to try and argue passionately for voting rights reform on the federal level, acknowledging that eventually they're gonna have to go back to Texas and unless they keep leaving, endure these special sessions where they will likely have to pass some kind of horrific voting rights violations. So I'm really excited about paying attention to these because I think it's rare that we get to see Democrats actually taking a stand. (laughs) So if you're not paying attention to what's going on with the Texas House Democrats in particular, take a look. I think it'll inspire you. So I'll leave it there for now. And let's play our conversation with Jamal Rod of Evergreen Action. Jamal Rod from Evergreen Action, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Jamal, there's obviously an ongoing debate around climate. I've heard a number of progressives say no climate, no deal in reference to the infrastructure bill. Yep. I guess I start from a position of if there's no climate, no deal, and I agree with that, what is the climate and what is the deal? What is the climate deal that we need to get to? Yeah. So when Ed Markey a few weeks ago tweeted, no climate, no deal, our partners, the Sunrise Movement and us quickly bought noclimatenodeal.com and used it as a organizing tool to both catalog the senators that have said similar statements and highlight their efforts and then give folks an opportunity to reach out to their members of Congress to urge them to also say no climate, no deal. So I do want to give a little plug for noclimatenodeal.com. But yes, it is incumbent upon us as climate advocates to communicate what does need to be in a possible reconciliation bill to meet the moment and do what the science demands. I was really heartened to see Anita Dunn and Gina McCarthy put out a memo a few weeks ago to begin to articulate what needs to be in the reconciliation bill. What we're hearing is that there will be something akin to a clean electricity standard 100% clean electricity by 2035, which is kind of the real core piece in the Biden climate agenda. We're going to see hundreds of billions of dollars in clean energy tax incentives, which are pretty crucial to ramping up renewables. And we're going to see a civilian climate core, which is something that the youth climate movement has been really excited about that will create good paying jobs doing work in their communities, but also create a pipeline of talented folks that are trained to do these clean energy jobs of the future, which uh, I'm really excited about. That's not all that needs to get done. We're hearing stuff about a green bank. We're hearing stuff about investments in clean vehicles and clean buildings, and we're going to need both of those. One thing that I haven't heard is in it that does need to be in there is fulfilling Biden's commitment to get rid of all fossil fuel subsidies. I think if we're discussing pay-fors, if we are discussing paying for this, it should be a no-brainer to get rid of all fossil fuel subsidies. What's the line? Like, at what point is it not enough climate, no deal? So I, and and I think the folks on Schumer's team is thinking about actual emissions reductions. How do we meet the 52% emission reductions by 2030 that President Biden committed to the international community in April on Earth Day? And so I think it's, it's actually talking about concrete emissions reductions. And it's two, are we meeting our environmental justice commitments that we made in the campaign last year? 40% of the investment going to communities, black, brown, indigenous communities that have been hit first and worst by this crisis that have borne the brunt of pollution and treated like dumping grounds by fossil fuel companies. So those are the two rubrics that we're looking at. 
Will it actually meet our international climate commitments? And will it meet the environmental justice commitments made last year during the campaign? Well, I, I want to unpack this so people kind of understand, because this is too critical not to understand, right? If we're going to we're talking about saving the planet, we have to reduce carbon emissions, and there's really kind of no other way to save the planet. Uh, we haven't kind of engineered a way to just take carbon out of the atmosphere yet. So we got to kind of reduce carbon emissions. And if I understand correctly, there's basically a couple of key ways to do it. The major one seems around tax incentives. It essentially, it's a market driver to change the way that businesses might invest. And I kind of start from the premise of are tax credits enough to do the carbon emissions reduction that we want? Can you talk a little bit about that? Why we as a progressive community focus on this kind of tax credit as being so critical to it? Yeah. So I actually think it's helpful to even click out further on this. The main driver of climate policy for decades was a carbon tax or a cap and trade system that were holistic, system-wide uh, approaches to defeating the climate crisis. That was Waxman-Markey, the climate approach uh, that we took a dozen years ago. It failed. And we've tried making progress in states on, on those issues, and we haven't made much progress. I think that there's been a shift in both the policy and politics around climate in the last few years. On the policy, it is that we are now taking a sector-by-sector -sector approach to taking on carbon emissions. There are three major drivers of carbon emissions, our electricity sector, our buildings, and our transportation sector. And so we are taking an investment and standards approach to decarbonizing each of these most polluting sectors of our economy. The main being the clean electricity standard, the idea that we need to get to 80% clean by 2030, 100% clean by 2035. And if we clean up our electricity sector and then make our transportation sector and our building sector run on that clean grid, then we can get a lot of the way there, if not the whole way there, on meeting some of the near-term carbon reduction targets. And so say a word about the tax incentives as a way to do that, because yeah, I definitely hear some of the argument from a, a more progressive space is like, could the government be directly involved in massive investments? You could imagine, you know, a Defense Department that spends billions and billions of dollars building weapons, instead building clean energy stuff, right? Uh, but that's not the way we're going about it. We are trying to build a market-based approach that would incentivize the direction of this. And obviously, we want it to be, in some sense, mutually beneficial to all parties that we want to move towards a clean energy economy where the business community and, the, and consumers all feel like, hey, this is the right way to go. But the concern would be that you don't get there fast enough, that it, that the climate hinges on us creating tax credits, incentives to move in this direction. But what happens if that isn't enough? Yeah. We haven't mandated it. Yeah. That's why folks do support standards in the sectors. Yeah. I believe that there should be standards in our vehicle fleet, that you should not be able to buy a internal combustion engine vehicle by a, a certain date, that new buildings at a certain point should not be allowed to run fossil fuel frat gas through your buildings. And I believe that eventually we will get there, but we are getting close to something that mimics a clean electricity standard, hopefully through reconciliation here. I get a question all the time, like, what's the most important thing here on climate? What issue? Is it the tax credits? Is it the standard? Is it the civilian climate core? Is it executive action? And I tell everyone this, we are too late in the process that we can just do one thing and solve this. We need to take an all the above climate policy approach. We don't have the luxury of choosing. We need to kind of see what sticks. 
We don't know what will pass muster with the courts. We don't know what will eventually be politically sustaining. Uh, those are all guesses. And so we need in this kind of crucial moment right now, while we have control of Congress that is fragile, uh, while we have the executive, we need to be all systems go on, frankly, everything. I have to admit, I just climate is so not my issue, Jamal, I got to tell you. And I think I'm probably part of the problem. As you said, like we need to do everything. And it's also a little bit too late to do everything. It makes me feel very demoralized and very much like I can't do this. Is this why it hasn't been a priority for Democrats? Am I a symbol of a broader sentiment? Why has this fallen by the wayside for the Democratic Party for so long, up until the last couple of years? Well, I do think that part of the story of the last couple of years is climate's rising prominence within the progressive coalition. We've seen the polling that it's risen up there with healthcare as a top issue for Democrats. We've seen the rise of groups like the Sunrise Movement and youth climate strikers really bring this mm -hmm. to the fore. But we've also seen the actual effects of climate change now visceral in people's lives. I'm here in Seattle where we had the hottest temperatures ever a couple weeks ago, 108 degrees in a city that only 42% of homes have air conditioners. We weren't built for this, <laughs> nor were our homes. I think that part of the reason why climate has not been as crucial an issue or as, as central of an issue as the past is that it's been so esoteric and like complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think we, the climate community has done a better job of it recently is like really telling it as a job creation opportunity that it's not only is there peril, but there's promise of a clean energy revolution and how people's lives will concretely improve if we take on this problem. And we could do a better job of that. But I, I think that that's part of the reason why it's become a more central issue. Can you give me an example of like the positive impact this kind of climate action could take? I'm not sure I'd ever heard it framed exactly in that way. Well, take, for example, the Civilian Climate Corps that mm -hmm. Evergreen, my group's been working on with other partners. This could be a really motivational thing. It's a unique opportunity to create a bold and popular program that will employ young Americans and catalyze broad enthusiasm for climate action. Imagine actually seeing people in your communities doing resilience work, doing forest cleanup. You know, someone's kid could be in this program. I think it's crucial that we show a real impact in people's lives of taking on the crisis. And I think Civilian Climate Corps is like a great example of it. But it's also just going to be more good paying jobs in their communities. Washington State, where I'm from, has a clean electricity standard with high road labor protections that ensures those jobs are good union wage jobs. There's a new wind farm that's being built in Lind, Washington, rural Washington, where there's project labor agreements. And these folks are going to make living wages working on the, these wind turbines. And that's a positive development. It's a real development <laughs> that people can see. We're going to take a quick break. I hope we helped explain why most progressives prefer clean electricity standards to tax incentives when it comes to climate change legislation and how the reconciliation bill could help. With that, we'll be back in just a few. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking to Jamal Rod, executive director of Evergreen Action. I remember you know, back in the early stages of the Obama administration, you wanted to tackle climate change. We had this kind of joint effort yeah. with Ed Markey, Henry Waxman, then committee chairs who were trying to push a cap and trade bill. And it, you know, even at that time, Newt Gingrich sat in a commercial 
with Nancy Pelosi on a couch, on a couch, <laughs> came together to say we as bold leaders of the yeah. Democratic Republican Party believe we should take action to address climate change. And what has happened literally since the moment they sat on that couch was, yeah. is that the Republican Party has turned into something unrecognizable on climate change to the point that even now, Jamal, you, you and I and, all, and, and Amanda, we all see the impacts of climate change in a very clear and stark way. And yet you do have Senator Ron Johnson and yeah. others literally saying they still deny climate change, the reality of climate change. And I'm I'm just grappling, like, how? Like, how is that possible? Give me a sense of how you understand the politics of climate change within the Republican Party. Well, I believe Ron Johnson said it was bullshit uh, yeah. recently, <laughs> though it's actually more craven than what you were describing even. <laughs> like, take, for example, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. It has money for resilience, but not actual any carbon reductions because right. Republicans will acknowledge that it's changing their communities and that they need to do something about it, but only to the fact of like raising roads and sidewalks. Right. right. So when you say resilience, it's climate <laughs> yeah. resilience such that we basically mitigate the impacts of when yes. climate change hits. So we do some stuff to say, oh yeah, maybe your building won't get flooded when, yeah. the, when the flooding comes. But we're not going to do anything to your point of, of actually addressing climate change by reducing carbon emissions. Yeah. I, I like to call it Florida Republican climate policy because uh, it's literally just the folks that will acknowledge that perhaps we need to build like a seawall because, you know, apparently the sea is rising. We're, we're not totally sure how or why, but it's happening. So we should fund that. But to actually make sure that the sea doesn't rise any further. No, not interested. I think that it's just important to acknowledge that the Republicans are in bed with the fossil fuel industry and that they're not going to do anything that will take on the fossil fuel industry's profits and bottom line and that they're just not legitimate partners in this any deal with them is not going to actually take on what we need to do to do what the science demands and um, that's why i think a lot of climate groups including mine were so frustrated with how long the bipartisan infrastructure negotiations were going if that was the only vehicle for getting something done because th there was just no way they were going to do what we needed to do on climate. But it's not just Republican legislators who are bad enough, the bullshit from Ron Johnson, right? It feels like it's even down at the base level. I was I, I saw this week there's a health expert who essentially gets fired in Tennessee because she's been urging COVID vaccinations. And Tennessee Republicans respond by saying, hey, you know, we're not going to urge anyone to get vaccinated. No kids need to get vaccinated. And I, I think of that as the example here merging with climate because they're science related. There's just a revolt around science, even at the base level within the conservatives. And I don't quite understand where that's coming from, why it's coming. Yes, fossil fuel money. And yes, there's industry. But what is it that drives this kind of anti-science passion of saying, no, screw the, what the scientists tell us. Screw what the health experts tell us. We're going to do it our own way because freedom or something. Yeah. It's all kind of connected, this kind of general grievance politics that, you know, they are trying to do something to my way of life that I do not like. And I don't care why you're telling me I have to change what I'm doing. But the mere fact that you're telling me that I need to do something is insulting to me. I don't fully understand the Republican psyche on that. <laughs> and if you do, let me know. But I should say that According to polling from our partners at Data for Progress and other places, there is widespread support across parties for ramping up renewables and transitioning off fossil fuels and for policies like a clean electricity standard and a civilian climate core. These are widely popular and it's not exactly partisan 
on some of these key policies. I also think the generational divide has been really interesting. At least the polling I have seen, while it's nowhere near where the Democrats are, Republicans ages 18 to 29, about two thirds of them believe humans are the main cause of global warming compared to just a third of Republican baby boomers. Now, that's not where we want them to be necessarily, but I, I do think there's a generational divide here that at least is causing a little bit of tension within their party. Is that something you're seeing? Yeah, I do think that there are younger folks in the Republican Party that know that it's unsustainable for them to just continue denying. And you've seen some shift in how Republicans respond, but it's still just a PR move. Mm -hmm. You know, Kevin McCarthy likes talking about, you know, there's a new conservative caucus on this in the House, right, that is looking at different ways that can sell their inaction on climate because they know it's a problem. Uh, not just with young folks, but suburban voters. So I do think that this will change eventually, but frankly, not at the time frame that we need bold action on. So we, as we mentioned, the Republican Party in the United States is not on the level when it comes to climate change. Like I think a lot about Florida under Rick Scott's tenure as governor could not mention climate change in official government documents and policies. Like it was to that point of denialism. Is there the same kind of anti-fact, anti-science parties in other countries? Like, does China have that problem? Does the EU have that problem? I'm not uh, an expert on this, but for example, Boris Johnson, you know, crazy-haired buffoon from the UK, has some pretty aggressive car standards that they're not going to sell an internal combustion engine in the UK past 2030 or 2035. We're seeing aggressive action from a center-right government with Angela Merkel in Germany. I do think you see some of the reactionary politics of America in Australia, which I know had climate denier prime ministers recently. But the American Republican Party is, I would say, a pretty considerable outlier in the international community. The home of fossil fuel pollution money. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about lobbying. <laughs> Jamal, you know a little bit about it here yeah. in Washington, D.C. Fossil fuel money has really had a huge impact to the point that you're just raising. Why are we so, such an outlier? Has something to do with the fact that fossil fuel money not only goes directly into Republican Party coffers, but has influence in so many different ways. I was wondering if you could help unpack that for people. What are all the different tentacles of the fossil fuel network in influencing public policy? Yeah, it brings to mind Kate Aronoff's story in The New Republic of Exxon funding a lot of even the centrist think tanks, six-figure checks to help impact the conversation. Uh, so it, it's literally not just direct donations to politicians. There should be a word for like when you're not surprised, but still surprised. Because I, I had this like weird reaction to the Exxon scandal, the news that John McCoy, their lobbyist, was you know basically just saying what we kind of already knew, that their support for climate policy was not on the level that they say they support a carbon tax because they need to say that they're for something, but they know that there's not support for it and it will never happen, that they fought to weaken the bipartisan infrastructure bill of its climate provisions, that they meet weekly with certain members of the Senate, like a standing meeting, which I find disgusting. By the way, you could draw a direct line. You probably saw the comments by Senator Manchin about uh, budget reconciliation. He's concerned that a clean energy standard it's just too much. It's very, very difficult for fossil fuel emitters, right? It, it, that was his concern. Uh, and you got to think that there's definitely some influence. Obviously, West Virginia, big coal state. He's reflecting, you know, some opposition or push against taking responsible climate action. 
in budget reconciliation already. Yeah. So I, uh, because I kind of have to be optimistic about this, I will take another angle at uh, the Manchin comments. He didn't really say anything new that he hasn't said before. He wants the ability for there to be innovation. And frankly, how you design a clean electricity standard, you could then give utilities funds for ramping up renewables and then find them for not. And that is an innovation strategy. It is not a uh, edict from on high that you can't burn coal by a certain date. Would I like that? Yes. <laughs> but it's not politically feasible. I mean, and so d- tell me a little bit more. Cut, we cut you off at like how they have influence. Let's name the actors. So there's a number of in, uh, influence peddlers in Washington, D.C., think tanks that are funded by fossil fuel polluters. And we should all be skeptical of the information that they dole out. But who are they, Jamal? I mean, look, there was a great article the other day of the folks that take uh, fossil fuel money, including some of those centrist think tanks that generate a lot of the ideas for the middle of the party. Um, Name them. Name them. I I believe the Brookings (laughs) Institution was mentioned. I believe the Bipartisan Policy Center was mentioned as folks that take money from the fossil fuel. Bipartisan Policy Center. Oh, Mm. man, that sounds like a great home for innovation and ideas. Yeah. Why why would they be taking money from fossil fuel? Uh, Jamal? Yeah. You know, I, I consider what Exxon and other fossil fuel companies do when they engage in climate politics to kind of be a three card Monty type situation where the policy they support is always under the other cup. You know, you support a carbon tax now. Well, we do not support that. In fact, oil companies spent over $30 million in 2018 to defeat a Washington state measure to put a tax on carbon. But now, now that we've moved on to a standards-based approach, they're now saying they support a carbon tax. Frankly, they're never going to support the current push of policy because that does not behoove their bottom line. And so it's, it's they're not well, good faith actors in this fight. Uh, and I'm not telling you faith, something you don't know. Right. But. And on that good faith actor, it was interesting in the in the bipartisan negotiations, you saw a lot of Republicans backed by their wealthy fossil fuel donors saying, we want a higher gas tax. And you could argue in the abstract that a higher gas tax might, in fact, have some carbon emissions impacts because, yeah. like, hey, maybe people will drive less. But you know who they're trying to place the, all the burden on? Low-income, middle-class, working Americans who got to drive long distances for their jobs, go back and forth. So, hey, you guys should pay. Meanwhile, that's all a preservation strategy, right? So that the high fossil fuel polluters, those who make big money off of fossil fuel pollution, don't have to pay. So it's just a cost shifting. But to your point, it's not on the level. It's not an honest deal. What they're trying to do is tank the efforts that would go through under this Democratic majority, which would require fossil fuel polluters to pay fines, but also impose some new restrictions and mandates upon them. Yeah. I I mean, and to take it a step further, Faz, they want to fund Republicans running ads saying Biden raised your gas prices. (laughs) Right. They want to cut the deal saying that we Republicans want Joe Biden to increase the gas tax. We'll cut the deal with you. But then when you do it, In 2022, you will definitely see Joe Biden broke his pledge not to raise taxes on low-income Americans, and he passed their gas tax because they compelled him to do so. That's what they want to do. Yeah. It's just important to constantly remind yourself who is on the level and who's acting in good faith here. Like, Take, for example, right now, where there is a serious discussion about getting the pay-fors right in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. There is no actual good faith effort to get the pay-fors right. In fact, they knew when they struck the deal that the Congressional Budget Office would not pencil out this deal as budget neutral. They just want to waste the whole July work period 
discussing it so we don't get stuff done, so we don't act on behalf of the people and deliver for them and kick it to August recess where who knows what will happen. This is not on the level. They do not want to strike a deal. And the fact is, I'm pretty dubious that they ever find the five other votes for the bipartisan deal. I just think the whole thing around the pay-fors is just an excuse to drag this thing out and hope that leads to us not being able to eventually do the reconciliation bill we need that will actually have the progressive priorities we need to pass. Battleground needs to take a quick ad break, but we'll be right back with Jamal Rod. And we're back with Jamal Rod of Evergreen Action. There has been a debate happening online about whether the climate activist movement, you know, Evergreen, Sunrise, et cetera, which are focusing primarily on pressuring Democratic electeds and you know, protesting Joe Biden on climate issues, whether that's the right tactic or whether it's a waste of time. And, you know, listening to you talk about the fact that Republican operators are never on the level or rarely in good faith, you know, it does play into that argument a little bit. I'm curious what your rebuttal is and what the rationalization is for the focus on pressuring Democrats over trying to, if not pressure Republicans, simply unseat them. Yeah, I will first note that criticizing oh, people that engage bananas. in yeah. climate politics is much easier than actually engaging in climate politics. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Two, uh, yeah, I read the Iglesias post. I just feel like... What what did this uh, gentleman named Matt Iglesias write, first of all, for our audience? No, for the audience, Matt Iglesias says that climate folks in their maximalist take on this would be better served by attacking House Republicans, not pressuring Democratic congressional leaders or the White House, and should basically shut up about some of their positions because climate politics is unpopular. I think that's the general take he had. I mean, he's just wrong on the merits. (laughs) One, what value do climate activists have engaging with House Republicans on this? Like, I I don't understand that. Two, Mm -hmm. the example he gave that climate stuff is unpopular was based on the carbon tax, which is not what we're pursuing right now. In fact, the climate policies we're pursuing right now are deeply popular. There's a great op-ed from Danielle Dysroth and Marcella at Data for Progress over the weekend in the Hill about how the inclusion of clean energy programs makes the overall infrastructure bill more popular. So I think that folks like the Sunrise Movement and others in the Climate Coalition are doing the right thing. They're pressuring the folks that they help elect to do the right thing. Well, in addition to that, we had this conversation with Danielle Butterfield from Priorities USA, and mm-hmm. we were talking about the salience of issues. And it's, it's not just that they're popular. What I think that increasingly you see higher levels of passion and interest and excitement around taking on the climate change. And I think, Amanda, you referenced that, uh, particularly when younger people, mm-hmm. see, it, it, the salience of this issue has increased in a significant way, thanks to uh, the wonderful activism of so many of the, and I would say even the Bernie campaign, helping generate some of this in such ways that starting to match and exceed what had been passions on the right for climate denialism. I actually thought that part of Bernie's rise in the late fall of 2020 was partly due to a renewed focus on climate. So I, Faz, would love your opinion on how you thought the climate stuff played out in the presidential on Bernie. It certainly, I mean, you're, you're we're right. We, we emphasized climate going into that period, not only because we thought we had the boldest climate 
policy in the field and wanted to generate this debate, particularly among a person who we saw as leading in Joe Biden. And Bernie would often raise the fundamental threshold question, if we all believe that climate is going to destroy our planet as we know it, then is there any price tag that is not big enough, essentially, to solve this problem? Why are we debating price when our future and our lives are at stake? I think to your point, we did see not only that it it engineered the debate we wanted, obviously moved Joe Biden in the right direction, not only in the primary, but in the general election, but also motivated people such that the salience of this issue increased, particularly, as you say, in the Democratic voters' minds, uh, putting aside the denial of the right. In the Democratic voters' minds, this issue is certainly a, a top one, two, three issue. Yeah, I do think my, you know, when I read that Iglesias piece, I see some of the points he's making. I think the question is not whether that the climate activism is a waste of money. I, in fact, disagree with the premise that there's a finite amount of resources to spend on these fights. You know, the amount of money in politics continues to rise every cycle, <laughs> for better or worse. It's a separate conversation we could have. And the answer is not, is what Sunrise or Evergreen or any of these other groups doing a waste? It's that, what else? I think what the Sunrise teens, such as they are, have been doing and the like is incredible. And we also need more media covering climate issues. And we need to combat Republicans who are not engaging on the level. And we need to elect Democrats on the state and local level who can pass meaningful climate legislation where the federal government might fail. And we need global action. It is the kind of thing where I think trying to argue that it's not the right strategy ignores the fact that it's not happening in a vacuum. And the answer is, in fact, yes and for all of this. Yeah. which is a sort of frustrating place to land because <laughs> the answer is we need to totally. do more of all of it. Yeah, there's not one weird trick that solves the climate mm. crisis. It's not like, oh, you're doing it wrong if you do it this way. It's It needs to be a bunch of people trying a bunch of different things, both on the policy front and on the communications front. And I think one of the things the Republican Party has done admittedly pretty well in this is turn some of the fight about climate into a culture war. You know, I think about the, the paper straws, which I've God, I hate paper straws, but like the use of paper or metal straws, the Democrats don't want you to eat meat anymore. You know, that becomes a symbol of a cultural identity as opposed to a scientific fight or even a political fight, which makes it often much harder for Democrats to engage in. And anything that really cast the blame on you, the individual, mm-hmm. as the source of the problem is bad politics and just wrong. You are not the problem, you and your home, because before you bought it or before you rented it, had frack natural gas flowing through it, does not make you the problem. It is our whole system. It is the fossil fuel industry pouring billions of billions of dollars to ensure that nothing changes. I hate those fucking paper straws. They disintegrate, they're so bad. They disintegrate, (laughs) they're terrible, and they're not the linchpin (laughs) to solving this thing. And that's the problem though with also the media literacy piece of this. We had questions in the debates about personal responsibility on climate and Cory Booker being asked about his veganism. That is not the crux of the issue. And in fact, the fossil fuel companies would love for the focus to be on your own personal carbon footprint. In fact, they run little trackers and they do promoted tweets asking you to check your carbon footprint. Exxon would like that. BP would like that. We have a systemic problem that needs Mm -hmm. collective action. My friends make fun of me a lot because I did not grow up recycling. I grew up in a part of Virginia where to recycle, you had to drive your recycling half an hour onto the other side of town. That didn't make sense to me or my family. But as I often tell them, like the best thing I can do for climate is live in a city, not drive a car and vote for Democrats. Yep. It's pretty good, all things being considered. The personal responsibility piece makes me a little batty. So I'm very glad you pointed out that discrepancy here. Yeah. Exit question here, Jamal, as we wrap. 
what keeps you optimistic? I mean, we're about mm. to head into a reconciliation debate and hopefully take the necessary climate actions to at least put us on the path of doing something for this planet to save it. And I just wonder, leaving the audience with kind of a note of what they can do and what keeps you uh, inspired yeah. to help positive change happens. I am optimistic because I kind of need to be <laughs> to be doing this work, yeah. but we have not been in this opportunity in a dozen years since Waxman Marquis. This is the most pivotal time in climate politics these next few months. And so if you were ever considering engaging or activating around climate, I would seriously hope you consider doing so right now. And I think that we are on the precipice of doing something big. It will not be enough. It will never be enough. We're going to then need to follow up with aggressive action, pushing on Biden to choose a Fed chair that will take climate seriously, that we will engage in new car rules that not just go back to California rules or Obama rules, but exceed them to, to ramp up the use of electric vehicles, we're going to need to invest in our buildings and clean them up and electrify them so they can run on a hopefully new 100% clean electricity sector. There's so much more we need to do. There's things that we haven't figured out yet, like how we're going to decarbonize certain industrial areas of our economy that frankly, we don't have the answers to. But figuring those things out will then be our luxury. Is that meant that we've made some progress and that we've passed something meaningful in the next few months? I think we can do it if we all uh, stick together. If the caucus sticks together, I do think that we can get something really big done in the next few months. Jamal, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jamal. Thank you so much to Jamal Rod for joining us on Battleground this week. And thank you to everyone who has emailed us or left us a voicemail, even if it was a little mean. If there's someone you think we should have on Battleground or a topic you'd like us to cover, please give us a call and leave a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Dee Scott and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 